as I adjust to the fact that there are people in this room. Jared and I have been making documentaries every single Sunday, actually on Friday afternoon. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to Jude. To Jude. We are in the conclusion of a series entitled One Hit Wonders, where we as a church have looked at the five books of the Bible that only have one chapter. We looked at Obadiah, and as we looked at Obadiah, we see the, the voice of the prophet. And we looked at the song Spirit in the Sky, if you remember. Uh, this week, we look at Jude, which talks about contending for the faith. I'm going to play the introduction to a song, and I want you to see if you recognize it, because it was the first song that I identified for this series. You may not identify it at all, but just listen to this little powerful guitar riff. So powerful. If you don't know that, I'm going to give you the hook to the song because it's fantastic. Hit it, Parker. the room who is a child of the 80s or the 90s or the 70s, really, if you're not a child of this current millennium, uh, I, I want, do we remember this? That makes me want to charge the downtown of Lake Jackson right now. Run up, the, well, I won't run up the steps. I'll go halfway up, stop, take a break, and then go the rest of the way. It's from the song Eye of the Tiger, written by Survivor. Uh, they were called by Sylvester Stallone because he had heard one of their songs called Premonition, and he liked it. So he calls, leaves a message, and the writer of the song called him back to hello because he thought it was a hoax, because we always think when cool people call us, it's a hoax, and said to him, call me Sly. How cool is that? Call me Sly. I don't know if you could understand a word that he said. But he said, call me Sly. He then says, I heard your song Premonition. I loved it. And I would love for you to write a song for my new movie, Rocky 3. If you are unfamiliar with Rocky 3, it starts off Sly or Sylvester Stallone or Rocky Balboa or Rambo, whatever you want to call him, is glistening, and as he stands there and glistens, he's making numerous commercials. All the while, they're showing someone who wants to fight him, his new opposition, Clubber Lang, played by um, the thespian, Mr. T. Eventually, you get to this scene where Mickey, who is Rocky's trainer, is sitting with him, and he tells him, Rocky! You've lost the eye of the tiger. When they sent the raw cut of the movie to the band Survivor, when the, when the band heard that line, they decided to write this song about being ready to do battle. We're looking at the book of Jude this morning, and as we look at the book of Jude, you see there is, an es in essence, the idea that we would contend for the faith, the Christian faith, the message of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to read along with me in Jude. I would say chapter 1, but it's the only chapter, so we'll just read Jude together. If anyone asks, you read a whole book of the Bible at church this morning. Jude, 
a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Verse 3, Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. If you are someone who writes or underlines in your Bible, that's a great phrase. Appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly. They are turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you come, came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and served as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal life in the same way these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander the glorious ones. Yet Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body. He did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and they have perished in Korah's rebellion. Verse 12. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feast as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the wind, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeps. They are wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against them. These people are the... These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people from their own for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people created divisions and are worldly. They are not. They do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling 
and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, be majesty, be power and authority before all time, now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. What a Sunday to come back to this conversation from Jude with this early church. When we look through the history of the church, we notice that this book was written in the mid-60s, one of the earliest books of the Bible. And when I say mid-60s, I don't mean the 1960s shaped by the fashion of Jackie Kennedy. I mean the 60s, 60s, the zero 60s. That's what we're talking about here. One of the very first books that we find in the Bible, it's written by the other brother of Jesus. You have Jesus. He has a brother named James. We look through the scriptures and we notice Jesus' brothers would come to him in the gospels. You've noticed those before. And they are always saying, hey, why don't you come back and go build houses with us again? Instead of being out here with all these people, they want to interact with Jesus. And Jesus keeps saying, you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't get it. And none of the brothers of Jesus got it until the other side of the resurrection. This gives us a picture of the early developing theology of the church. And we can look at this book and we can see that Jude is calling us to keep in mind what it means to contend for the faith of believers. What it means for us to be people who have God's vision in mind for the church. Again, we'll look at this text. Jude, that's who he is, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, says this to the church. To this church that he writes to in particular in the 60s and to every church that will ever exist, he gives us a passive understanding of who we are. And here's what I mean by passive. He's going to use words that are declarative. This is something that God has done that you did not get to do. God did these things. God called you. God called you from sin. God called you from death. We notice that idea of calling, the calling of the church throughout much of the scriptures. Not only did God call you, God has loved you. You are loved by God the Father and you are kept for Jesus Christ. You are loved by God the Father. So for those of us who are believers in Christ, we have been called to be part of the church. We are loved as people who belong to the church, and we are kept for the church. Jesus keeps us. We, those of us who do not stray away from the Christian faith, do not stray away ultimately by the grace of God alone. So you see the passive situation in this passage of God saying to us as we look at the text, this is who you are as the church. And then you get to the point where Jude says, here's what I want to talk about. I want to come to you and I want to talk about, I'm eager to write about our shared salvation. We've been there, moms and dads. Moments when we had a grand plan to to discuss something that we thought that would be wonderful. Yet for whatever reason, the people who we had this grand plan for had a problem. Maybe you have shown up at your house and you plan to have a movie night complete with candy and popcorn and pizza or numerous other carbohydrates. And when you look at your children, you notice that they, in the 45 minutes when you took a walk around the block, have destroyed your house utterly. I had a plan for us to have a really good time. 
for us to celebrate something together. But when I walked in, I realized we've got a mess and we need to deal with this mess. So that's where we see Jude in this passage. I plan to talk to you about something that I think is wonderful and incredibly important. But when I showed up, I noticed that you've got this situation in the church. I want to talk to you about what we have in common, but now as I look at you, I have to talk about the fact that there is a struggle for you because you have not contended for the faith. There's a problem in your church. There's an issue. Why would this church that we are looking at in Jude in particular have a problem with these false teachers creeping in? Well, you'll keep in mind that the church is a baby at this point in history. They, when this is written, they don't have a whole lot to look back at as to what the church should be. They don't have models. They have nothing to mimic. They have nothing to, other than what God has done for them, they have nothing that they can look at and learn from and say, this is how we're supposed to function and this is how we deal with false teaching. So when they look at this, these problems that they have are problems that are obvious, and but they're not new. These are problems that this church is dealing with that have been problems for the Christian faith, the Judeo-Christian faith, from the very beginning. You notice this, that as Jude writes this, he uses examples from church history, and he points out these numerous things that are there. Go with me to verse 4 again. For some people were designated for judgment long ago. They have come in by stealth, which means they put on their ninja outfits, they snuck in, they're ungodly, and they have turned the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus. So what are they saying? They have come into the church, they have infiltrated the church, and they have said about Jesus whom the church is based in, he will not come again. There will be no final judgment for you. And because there is no final judgment, you have no fear of judgment. They're saying this to believers, undoing their belief. They're saying this to some who may want to be believers, who are congregating with the church, distracting them from what they should believe in. There are problems for this church. Are they major problems? Are they big problems? I think that that's easy for us historically to look at and and think through in our own situations where we have experienced uh, trouble within churches. We've experienced people who've made mistakes. We've experienced situations where we wanted to simply ignore them and allow them to go away. If you ignore a problem, it will go away. We tell ourselves that, though that's never really the case. Uh, And I I got a book for Christmas from Hope, uh, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Anybody read this? Cool. You should read it. It's great. Uh, And in Talking to Strangers, he tells stories about how people misread other people. One of the primary stories he tells at the beginning of the book is about Adolf Hitler. You've more than likely heard of him. Adolf Hitler, uh, infamous, the leader of Nazi Germany who killed six million Jewish people. He started this, the, the German, the Nazi party. Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister of Great Britain and he went to visit with Hitler. He came back and he did not believe, though he did see that they had, they did not see eye to eye. He did not believe 
problem for the world. The, after World War I started, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor looked at Adolf Hitler and they believed if he wins the war, maybe, just maybe, we'll get to return to England and be the king and queen. I know we're speaking of things taking place across the pond. Let's bring this home. Uh, before Pearl Harbor, there were many Americans who believed that if America were to join World War II, they would do so on the side of the Germans. They'd heard all these rumors as to what Hitler was doing with the Jewish people, but there was no way, shape, or form that could actually be true. We deal with problems for what they are, because problems don't just go away. Problems grow. Problems multiply. Problems are problems for a reason. And, and you see with this early church, he says, I want to remind you in verse 5, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angel did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness. He's pointing out there have always been problems within what we understand to be the Judeo-Christian faith from which we get Christianity, but God has always had to deal with those. He did not ignore them. And if we are going to be the people of God, seeking to mimic God, follow the patterns of God, we cannot be people who ignore problems within the church. So you notice this text. He points out Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you are unfamiliar with this, this story, God sends these angelic messengers to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the men of Sodom and Gomorrah want to take advantage of them. You, you see the story here of the angels who did not keep their position. It, it's a reference to what takes place in the Exodus where these fallen angels would interact with, with women you, you notice over and over that God deals with sin as if it is sin. He deals with it as if it's a problem. Verse, you notice in verse 8, In the same way these people were lying on their dreams, they defile their flesh, they reject authority, and they slander the glorious ones. Here, he's pointing out that within the church that Jude is writing to, there is this situation of people who have snuck in stealthily and they have caused havoc over and over. They, he, he then gives more examples from the history of the, of the Jewish people, examples that they would be familiar with. He says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Cain built a violent city that was in opposition to God because he was unhappy with what God's judgment for him was. That they have gone into they have gone the way of Balaam. If you are unfamiliar, Balaam was sent to give to give a prophecy. Well, when he was sent, there's a whole conversation as to what takes place in the history of the Jewish people where he says they're not going to turn away from their God. So rather than me trying to get them to turn away directly, I'm going to send in cult prostitutes from other religions. And when they, when they go in to meet with these men, they will indirectly turn them. This is what he's saying. That whether it's a direct assault or an indirect assault, an assault is an assault. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have plunged into Balaam's heir for profit, and they have perished in Korah's rebellion. 
You see these stories referenced from the history of Judaism. And the writer Jude is saying to the church, we need to deal with this because God is one who deals with sin. And we as a church should be people who are seeking to make this place more and more like God. Verse 12, these people are dangerous reefs. If you don't know, a reef, it's it's there. You don't see it. It it takes your boat out. Uh, They are dangerous reefs at your love feast. This is a reference to early communion where you would take the bread, you would take the cup, and as you would take that, you would celebrate all that God has done for you. And these people cause problems in the midst of that. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. Hear me, friends. What does a shepherd do? Their whole job is to look after others. But they don't look out for others. So they are shepherds who are not really shepherds. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds. When I was in Israel in December, one of the things that was brought to our attention was they don't sing the song, Rain, Rain, Go Away. They are always grateful for rain. They are grateful for rain to the point that they make you tour through cities in downpours, which wasn't awesome. But as you look at this, he's saying they are waterless clouds, which means the Jewish people are looking to these clouds, hoping upon hope that rain would fall and there is nothing coming out of them. That's what he's saying about these men who have infiltrated the church. They are trees in late autumn fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. He's not a big fan of these people. So we don't let them sit there. He then points out from church history, the history of of the Jewish people, other places where these men have caused problems. This is not a new problem. It is not a new problem for churches to have problem people. It is not a a new problem for those who are God's people to have some who would stir up anxiety and animosity and issue among them. So we deal with them. We deal with them. The passage says this. It was about that, the Enoch in the seventh generation. This is a reference. You can see a slight reference to it in Zechariah. Uh, but it's from, honestly, there are some he, other Hebrew sources from which Jude references here. Look, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against them. These people are discounted grumblers. The grumbler in the, in the passage, whenever we find that word in the New Testament, when we see it in Scripture, it's in Philippians as well. The word grumbler does not mean that you have someone who causes problems in the open. The word grumbler is a reference to people who are consistently saying things under their breath to intentionally stir up problems for those who may overhear them. It's, it's almost a guttural sound, a grumbler. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Grumble, grumble, grumble. We know the grumbler. Maybe you are the grumbler. There's a possibility that you live with a small person who grumbles when you give them direction. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And this grumbling does not just affect you. It affects everyone around you. It's 
a problem that's there that needs to be addressed. I went to a summer camp. Those were cool. Uh, I went to a summer camp. First one that I ever attended was in 1997, which, wow, that just dated me. And when I was at this summer camp, it was a really terrible camp. I didn't love it. The only thing that I really liked was mealtime because they brought in restaurant food every day. And one day they brought in Arby's, and I love Arby's. And one day they brought in um, Pizza Hut, and who doesn't like Mormon pizza? And one day, they they are, they're owned by Mormons, so we'll work through that. Uh, but one day they brought in Chick-fil-A. Who doesn't like Chick-fil-A? Justified, glorified, sanctified. It's awesome. Uh, one day we're at the ocean in the ocean, me and my best friend, and as we stand in the ocean, we hear that they're going to bring a lunch that he did not like that day. They were going to bring Subway. Now, I like Subway, okay, especially in the late 90s, before we had all these other wonderful sandwich shops that charge you three and four times as much money. But as we stand in the ocean, I hear him grumble under his breath as to the fact that he does not like Chick-fil-A, to which I grumble, you are such a picky eater. Uh... At that point, he grumbles something about me. Eventually, the two of us have lunged towards one another like Jaws and Shamu in the middle of the ocean. In this moment, our youth pastor steps between us, takes hold of both of our necks just to let you know how tough we really were, and he separates us, saying to us, you have to leave this here because this does not just affect you, it affects everyone around you. For those who are these false, stealthy teachers who have infiltrated the church... Jude is saying, take hold of them, and if they are really believers, call them to repentance. And if they're not believers, you need to deal with them, because this will not just affect you, it affects everyone around you. Our grumbling and our complaining as followers of Jesus does not just affect us, it affects everyone around us. I know from personal experience that in my own life, when I am a grumbler, and I can lean into grumble pretty easy, it does not just affect me, it affects everyone around me, sinfully affects everyone around me. I am a source of a problem. And as you look at this passage, he's pointing out and he's saying you have these discontented grumblers living according to their own desires. As they grumble, they're not doing so. Even with any type of good motive, they're just doing what suits them, doing what serves them. And that, friends, is ungodly. In our own own grumbling, in our own disputing, in our own discontented interaction... What are we saying? The thing about this church that we look at, that Jude addresses, most people believe that his primary address was not to what these people believed theologically, though that was underlined. His primary address was to how they were behaving. These people were claiming Jesus as Lord, yet in no way, shape, or form living as if Jesus happened to be Lord. That they were allowing fear and numerous other things to run and rule their lives. What about us? Are we allowing things that are ungodly to reign in our lives and in our hearts? Are we disgruntled, discontented grumblers living according to our own desires? You see the passage continue and it says this, but you dear friends, this is you, this is me, I hope, this is us. What was predicted by the apostles, but you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You keep in mind, we knew the grumblers were coming in their grumbling ways. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. We knew that there will be some who would seek to infiltrate the church and cause discontent. These people create division and they are 
worldly, they do not have the Spirit. Now, this does not mean that we get to address every believer that we disagree with on a tertiary level and say, hey, you're a moron. That's probably not healthy Christianity. It does not mean that we get to look at every song and turn over every book and point out the faults that are there. But it does mean that within this body of believers that we are called to be people who say, hey, we need to work through this. We need to think through this. And if these things infiltrate, we deal with them. The passage continues and he gives us benediction and this exhortation. And as he closes it out, I love the things that he says. He says, you dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Build yourself up in the faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some who like to get to the place that this is about talking in tongues, and, and that's not exactly what's happening here. That might be a tertiary or even a next-level result. But for the most part, when we understand this passage, it's not pointing out that. It's talking about those of us who are God's people interacting with God for God's sake. That we lament leads us to lament, that we celebrate because the Spirit leads us to celebrate, that we are guided and directed by God Himself through the power of His Spirit alive in us. You keep yourselves in the love of God. That we would stay in God's love. That we would maintain in God's love. Now, keep in mind, we started out with these passive words at the very beginning. It says you are called, loved, and kept. But right here, it's saying for the believers, so you need to stay. Keep making decisions. Keep putting one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, hoping to get to the goal of meeting with God and interacting with God and knowing God. You taking deeper, taking steps towards a deeper walk with God. Because, yes, all of those things are true. But they, we are called, loved, and kept in the passive. But they do not disqualify the active call of God for us to be seeking Him, wanting to know Him. You keep yourself in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Then have mercy on those who waver. When someone has been a dum-dum, who has made a mistake, you have mercy on them. Don't behave hatefully and angrily. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Here's the thing about fire snatching, though. In the same way that this passage is pointing out that there are some who are caught up in the fires of dissension and, and all of these things. But if we're not careful, what we don't see, what we don't acknowledge is that they, though they may be in the fire of dissension and mistrust, they're actually acting as if they're making s'mores there. It's a place that they think they're supposed to be. This is why we're not called to this alone. We're called to community. We're called to relationship. We're called to accountability. All of these things are scripturally true. All of these things, this, this idea of these letters in the church being written to churches points out that we have a bond of being together. So we love that we get to celebrate like this. So we get to be together as a body of Christ. It says this in the passage. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear. Hating even the garment defiled by flesh. The writer of the book is pointing out, the book of Jude, that yes, when you snatch someone from the fire, 
make sure that that fire does not get a hold of your sleeve. Because that's possible that as we well-meaning followers of Jesus seek to save and interact with believers who may be, may be in difficult places, that that difficult place, we don't want that difficult place to become our place. We don't want to be stuck in that. And then he closes with this promise, this powerful promise. Now to him, verse 24, who is able to protect you from stumbling? The phrase there is because we reworded it to make it flow a little better. It doesn't quite get the picture that Jude provides in the original language. It actually reads, now to him who keeps you from unstumbling. Now to him who keeps you steady and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. He points out here that ultimately, though we can, we're going to deal with issues within the church, we're going to deal with issues within that arise in our relationships. We're going to deal with grumbling and complaining. But ultimately, all of those things are intended to point toward who Jesus is. And to him, he gets all glory, majesty, and power, and authority forever and ever and ever. So for us as a church, what would it mean for us to look at our lives, for us to consider our hearts, for us to wrestle with our decisions, and for us to hope to be declaring the goodness of Jesus in all that we do and in every way that we do it? Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to pray for us. Jesus, you're good. I thank you for these people. I thank you that you've called us. You've equipped us. You've prepared and provided for us. That you've given us an opportunity to trust you, to know you, to love you. Lord, I thank you that we get to meet with you this morning. That we get to know the power of your word. Lord, and I pray that all the things that we have in this life, Lord, that we will see that we get to acknowledge you by clinging to truth, by trusting your spirit, by walking in, in it, and by walking towards you. Lord, let us actively pursue the passive things that you've done. You have saved us. You have loved us. You have kept us. You have called us. And let our hearts be drawn toward knowing those things better and better each day as we actively seek to know you. We ask all of this in your powerful name.